cost of living has went up significantly over the last couple of years. Everyone's feeling that. Well, what happens when cost of living goes up and maybe wages don't, you know, increase as much for some individuals out there, you have an increase in delinquency. So tenants that aren't able to pay their rent. So certain asset classes, certain submarkets, we've seen delinquency creep up. Now, We've adjusted our underwriting and our criteria. So we're focusing on areas where the median household income is higher and where, you know, the tenants can afford the rents or the pro forma rents that we're looking to achieve. So that's been a massive difference in how we underwrite deals now compared to four or five years ago. Welcome to Investing in the US, a podcast for real estate investors, business owners, and aspiring entrepreneurs looking to grow their wealth by investing in US real estate. I'm your host, Reed Goosens, and so far, I've acquired over $800 million worth of investments on various properties across the United States. On this podcast, I interview go-getters, risk-takers, and the best in the business to learn more about their investment journey and the cutting-edge strategies they are applying towards building a legacy. For more on growing your own wealth and by investing in the US, visit www.reedgoosens.com. Today on the show, I had the pleasure of speaking with Michael Roder. Michael was a top-performing high-net-worth insurance broker for a Fortune 500 company for over a decade, but then Michael transitioned from single-family housing actually into multifamily housing back in 2015. And today, he's a general partner on over 2,500 units, about $350 million worth of assets. I'm really pumped and excited to have him on the show today to share his incredible knowledge and insight with us. But enough out of me. Let's get him out here. G'day, Michael. Welcome to the show. How are you doing today, mate? Thanks so much for having me on, Reed. Super excited to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. Looks like you're a little bit rainy up where you are. Is that rain behind you? Is that uh? Yeah, it dr- is. It is coming down in sheets. It's been raining for the past twenty four hours. So hey, if we need it. <laughs> where are you dialing in from today? Uh, Central Minnesota. So a little bit northwest of Minneapolis, if you're familiar. Well, like what we'd like to do on all these shows, Michael, is we like to ask our guests to rewind the clock and tell me how they made their first ever dollar as a kid. Can you rewind the clock and tell me what you did? Yeah, definitely. So a little bit tough to remember the first dollar that I made. However, the first job that I got when I was a kid, I was about 11 years old and I applied for a position at a berry farm. So we lived out in the country. There was potato farms, berry farms, you know, they're raising crops, uh, all types of crops. And I ended up getting a job at 11 years old. So I would literally bike about five miles to this berry farm. We'd pick berries all day long and then I would bike home and, you know, I just remember having the drive and the motivation and I ended up being the number one berry picker on that farm. And it was, it was a lot of fun. We had a lot of fun. We had some good buddies that worked with us and really enjoyed it. That's awesome. Walk us through the, the journey, how, your relationship with money growing up and how you ended up in real estate investing. I was I really enjoyed money when I was a kid. Um, I was always looking for ways to you know build up my piggy bank essentially, you know, trading things, selling pogs, selling candy. You know, like I said, I got my first job when I was about eleven years old, and I always had a job since then. And when I was about uh, twenty years old, I purchased my first house with my girlfriend. She's now been my wife for over fourteen years, and we house hacked that house. So we found a, a property close to campus, four bedroom property bought the asset or the house. We rented out three of the four bedrooms and we fell in love instantly with the cash flow. I mean, we weren't paying for the mortgage or the utilities. Our our roommates were paying for the bulk of that and it worked out really well. So we eventually turned that into a rental property and then just continued to accumulate single family rentals from that time on. 
Awesome. And in, in that, you mentioned in that time that you have now transitioned into uh, multifamily assets, bigger assets. Why was that transition? A lot of people talk about that, but was there a particular need for you to try and grow into uh, bigger asset types? There was. So I had a corporate job. Um, I was an insurance consultant, did that for about a decade. I was working downtown Minneapolis, which was about an hour from my primary home. And then my rental properties, my single family rental properties were another hour from my house in the opposite direction. So what was happening is I was experiencing burnout. I was doing all the maintenance. I was doing the leasing, all the property management, you know, all the marketing. And essentially I would get home from my corporate job. You know, I'd commute about an hour to an hour and a half, get home, see my kids for, you know, maybe a half an hour to an hour. And then many times I'd have to head back out to that market where my single family rentals were to do the work that I needed to do for those properties to cash flow. So there was a point in time where, you know, I said to myself, gosh, there's got to be a better way than this to build passive income and to build wealth. And I knew real estate was the tool that I wanted to use to get there, but single families weren't doing it for me. So at that time, I started to educate myself, you know, hired a mentor. Uh, My business partner had been buying some apartments and was really successful with it. So we ended up teaming up. We joint ventured a couple of deals. So we stuck our own funds into a 20 unit, into an eight unit. And then shortly after that, we decided we were going to you know, start our own firm and start syndicating projects. So pooling people's money together to buy larger apartment complexes. It seems to be the, the thing that everyone did for the last seven or eight years, right? Since 2015, everyone seems to be doing it. Obviously, this podcast has been around since then. That's what I've been doing since then. So how have you seen the market transition in just people jumping in the pool, you know, trying to be a syndicator? Yeah. So there's been a lot of people that have jumped into multifamily over the past few years. And obviously pricing ramped up. It's dropped off now. I mean, pricing across the nation is down by about 20 to 25% in the multifamily and, you know, pretty much the whole commercial real estate industry. And what I've seen happen is there's been a lot of newbies that have jumped in, which is just fine, but, you know, maybe they didn't build up the knowledge that they needed or, Worse yet, if they had a full-time position or more than a full-time position and they're trying to asset manage these deals, you know, so maybe they have three, four apartment complexes and they have a job that they're working 50 hours a week at. Well, it's very tough to fit everything in. And so what happens is these properties start to slip if you're not sticking the time and the energy and the focus into them. And so that's where you're seeing some distressed assets coming to the market right now because there's been either subpar asset management or, in some cases, short-term debt that's coming up for renewal right now. It's definitely going to be a wave of, you know, wipeouts, if that's even the right word, that's going to be coming, you know, now in the next six months. And, and, you know, I'd love your opinion on, like, what are you seeing today in your assets that maybe not necessarily is the same talking points from what the Fed's talking about? Because I know I've got an opinion on like what I'm seeing in my real estate investments and it ain't being discussed in the in the headlines. There's a few things that are happening right now. So first off, you have cost of living has went up significantly over the last couple of years. Everyone's feeling that. Well, what happens when cost of living goes up and maybe wages don't you know increase as much for some individuals out there, you have an increase in delinquency. So tenants that aren't able to pay their rent. So Certain asset classes, certain submarkets, we've seen delinquency creep up. Now, we've adjusted our underwriting and our criteria. So we're focusing on areas where the median household income is higher 
and where you know the tenants can afford the rents or the pro forma rents that we're looking to achieve. So that's been a massive difference in how we underwrite deals now compared to four or five years ago. You're also seeing costs go up. I mean, obviously, you know, expenses have went up tremendously over the past few years. You know, a lot of markets have been hit with some really high insurance costs, especially coastal states. And so we've had to make some modifications in, you know, switching our insurance to different providers, modifying deductibles, you know, just making sure that we're on top of that to keep our our costs within control. And then property taxes too. You know, some markets have experienced big hikes in property taxes. So you need to make sure that you have a an expert on your team so you can go and litigate the property taxes. And we use an expert in that field. And you know, luckily in 2023, we came in about $450,000 lower than we expected because of that, that expert personnel. And that, you know, that equates to almost $7 million in value that we've created out of thin air if you use a six cap. And so you can really build up a lot of value if you're using the right providers. Yeah. No, it's, look, a lot of things to unpack there, but I, I think the first thing that you're hitting on is, is that cost of, cost of living, the increase of the inflationary environment. As much as inflation seems to be coming under control, Prices are still high, right, at the grocery store. And, you know, I think there's a lot to do with corporations keeping those prices higher than what they actually probably need to be, right, which is a whole pot topic in itself for, for a podcast. But, yeah, I'm seeing the same thing on, my, on, on some of my, you know, C plus, B minus assets where, you know, the average household income might be around forty or $50,000 at the community. Uh, so, our, you know, our rents are 1000 to 1300 bucks, But, yeah, the delinquency is starting to tick up, right? Evictions and stuff stuff starting to really, really, you know, hit the bottom, uh, hit the pocket. Are you seeing any of your, with the delinquencies, how are you trying to like combat that? And have you seen a slowdown in people looking for rentals in any of your particular markets, given, you know, that there is a bit of a pinch right on, on the pocketbook and, and people may be moving back in with their, with their families again? We haven't necessarily seen a slowdown across the markets that we're in. We're in Dallas, Fort Worth, and Nashville, so two very robust markets. There has been a bit of a shift moving from one-bedroom apartments to two-bedroom apartments. Um, like you said, people are moving in with their buddy or their parents or their family. And so, you know, we're more focused on those assets that have a higher percentage of two and three-bedroom apartments. And then back to your question on delinquency and how we're combating that. You know, that again comes down to really good asset management. Sure, your property management company should have systems and processes in place, you know, to combat delinquency, but you need to oversee that. You need to make sure that they're doing a proper job. So, a couple of things that you can do there, you know, door knocking, sending out constant communication if tenants are late on their rent, have strict late payments. So, if the, the residents don't pay by a certain date, make sure that you're implementing those late fees and make sure that those continue to build over time, you know, as long as they're legal and, and they abide by the laws in the area. And then, you know, you might want to set up an incentive. We haven't done that on any of our assets, but let's say, you know, you are struggling with delinquency. Maybe you give the tenants a, a bit of a discount if they get their, their rent in on the first, second, or third of the month. So, that is an option as well. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a, it's a very good idea. Part of the things we see, uh, you know, particularly in assets we take over, is if you've got someone who's like two or three months behind, it's very rarely that they're going to be able to catch up, right? Sort of all the the, the state and the government funded you know, programs have really pretty much dried up now, regardless of where you're renting from LA to New York down to Miami through all the Sun Belts. Like it's, 
you know, it's just not there anymore, right? But rents have increased and you have seen a bit of a pullback in some rents, but we've seen rents increase upwards of 25% over a period of two years, right? We're now starting to see some rents come back 5 6%, but you're still up you know, net, net, uh, you know, well into the the low 20s or the high teens in terms of, you know, growth. And it's happened relatively quickly, right? So back to my point of like, when someone gets behind, it's very difficult for them to get ahead again. And we've had to do, you know, cash for keys or just like, hey, look, move out because we're not going to go take, take, take you to eviction, but just give us the keys, move out, you know, we'd rather have the property back and, you know, move on your merry way because sometimes it's just, it isn't worth the headache going through the eviction process to have it dragged, the pain dragged out for another two or three more months. And then they just keep accumulating rents, which is becomes a massive issue. So have you, how are you, how are you handling that with like good asset management? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think it's dependent on what state and city you're investing in. So Dallas and Nashville were able to get residents out fairly quickly, typically within a two to four week period. And, you know, if you're investing in New York or California or, you know, a different state, you know, it might be a much longer process. So cash for keys may very well make much, you know, better sense. Um, For us, we have a strict eviction policy where, you know, if the tenants don't pay by a certain period of the month, you know, then they get a three-day notice and we move forward with the eviction. Now, we have done cash for keys on certain assets in certain states as well. So I do think that's a very good tactic to use in certain circumstances. So certainly talk to your property management team about that and at least bring that idea up and brainstorm and strategize as a team and see if that's a good method to use going forward. What are you doing when you're now looking for deals? Because one of the big things that's happened in the last 12 months is there's been what a 70, 80% drop off in volume and sales just in the multifamily space. How are you still keeping active as a syndicator? Because, you know, let's be honest, syndications, a syndication company is is sort of you know, predicated on the fact that you've got to, have, got to keep doing deals to make it work. So last year, we closed six assets, six multifamily assets ranging from 100 to 400 units per acquisition. This year, we're on our third right now. So it's, you know, basically our acquisitions have been cut in half. We've looked at the same amount of deals. We were actually just looking at our deal flow tracker the other day. Last year, we analyzed about 168 properties. At this point in time, this year, we've analyzed about 158. So we'll probably analyze more deals this year than we have in previous years. But we're being very picky. You know, we know that there's a ton of opportunity coming down the line. So we want to make sure that, you know, the opportunity cost isn't too high for us to jump into a deal right now. We want to make sure that there's some sort of distress or that the asset is performing exceptionally well or it's in a great submarket for us to take on an acquisition right now. And a couple of things that we've modified over time, you know, like I said before, median household income. Right now, we're targeting anything $50,000 plus on the one mile. We also take a look at the neighborhood income as well. That's our bare minimum. We also take a look at the crime scores, the schools. Um, We're also paying very, very close attention to delinquency. Whereas before, you know, if a property had 10% delinquency and we knew the area, we knew we could get in there and fix that issue. Now, if a property has 10% delinquency and we're taking a look at it, we're probably going to pass and target an asset that has much lower delinquency because we know that's a tougher you know, issue to, to overcome at these times. It's interesting you mentioned 55,000. I actually told my team to raise it to 65,000. We don't like to look at areas. If, if you're under 65,000 at within one mile average household income, don't look at it. 
it's not worth the time. It's not worth, no offense, it's just not worth the, the headache. Do I not believe that other areas of MSAs deserve affordable housing? I do, but it's just to your point of like you're attracting a type of tenant base that just can can be very, you know, transient and I just it doesn't help with the overall asset management and, you know, sleepless nights, let's be honest, <laughs> uh, you know, with, with higher interest rate environments that – you don't want to have to constantly be like, do we? We're, you know, we, we're missing twenty percent of the income for the month because people just chose not to pay. So I think that's extremely important nugget there because it's we're 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 doing it on our side at RSM Property Group, and it's just part of how you've now got to up your game a little bit. Talk to me about how you are acquiring and what type of debt and. You know, have you seen any changes in going in cap rates in the markets that you're you're, you're acquiring in? We look in Dallas as well. I got deals in Central Texas, so I'm, I'm familiar with those markets. Um, but just wanted to hear a little bit about what what you're seeing uh, boots on the ground. Yeah, great question. So going in cap rate, those have definitely adjusted as the the debt market you know rates have increased over the last eighteen months. You know, in Dallas, we were seeing you know anywhere from four to five percent typically going in cap rate. You know, now it's closer to five to six and a half, depending upon the asset class and what submarket it's in. And then as far as the debt, you know, we're we're placing fixed debt on all of our assets. Uh, we did do a few bridge deals over the last couple of years. Luckily, we shifted away from that pretty quickly and got into fixed rate. And for leverage, you know, anywhere from 55 to 70% leverage, just depending upon how the deal underwrites and what the DSCR is at. So we have seen the leverage come down because two to three years ago, you know, you were seeing a lot of deals getting done at 80% leverage. You know, some people were financing their CapEx dollars as well. So the leverage was to the moon, you know, plus you had that short-term variable rate loan environment. And that's where a lot of people are are getting into hot water right now. Um, so those are two of the major changes that we're looking at. Like you said, volume is down quite considerably, You know, about 80% reduction compared to a year and a half ago. So there's not a lot of deals being done right now. And the deals that are being done are being done by reputable buyers because what sellers and selling brokers are looking for, they're looking for individuals that can actually follow through and do what they say they're going to do. And there are so many deals out there right now that are falling through because the individuals can't raise the capital. So that is a big, big point in the market right now is just being able to follow through with what you're said you're going to do. We just closed on a deal two weeks ago, um, 100 units in Phoenix, and um, we were a million dollars less on the purchase, or so millions left on the on the offer compared to someone else, um, but they didn't trust that other group, and they came to us, and, and we got it done. It was difficult. So um, on our side of the coin, we've had to do some things and adjust. We're sort of first time we've actually been continued to raise after we close. You know, you know, stuff like capex dollars and fees, and you know, operating reserves. That's you know, we, we're not we're going to fixed rate product as well, but it just you go back last year, you could raise all of it and be closed out within two or three weeks. Today, it looks a little different. So, how how are those conversations going with investors in today's market, particularly those investors who may be involved in some deals that are having capital calls or having a bit of distress right now? Yeah, I think it's really painting the picture of why now is a good time to invest. You know, there's a lot of fear in the market right now, uh, a lot of uncertainty on where the economy is going to go. You know what's going to happen with pricing, and if you take a step back, you know pricing has reduced by twenty to twenty-five percent. Sure, it might go down a little bit further as these distressed assets come out, but interest rates, you know, from my point of view, and who knows if this is correct, 
But if you look at all the experts throughout you know, the market, it seems like interest rates are very close to stabilizing. You know, I think the Fed is likely to pause over the next couple of sessions that they have. And so I do think that it's ready to stabilize. And so what that means, in my opinion, is we're close to the bottom as far as what pricing is going to do. So that's a great time to step in. The other couple of things to take into consideration are, you know, we're a renter nation and we're becoming more and more so every day. So right now, about 33% of the nation is renters. And within the next couple of years, it's projected to go up to about 35%. So 2% increase of people that may own homes shifting to people that rent. And that is a massive increase in the demand for these apartment complexes. The other thing too is, you know, submarkets that you're investing in. So for instance, we're in Dallas, Fort Worth and Nashville, both very robust markets. And if the submarket doesn't have enough supply and there's, you know, a ton of demand, you know, that in my opinion is a great market to get into and to, to possibly take down a multifamily acquisition. Yeah. No, it's it, there's, there's a lot of things going on right now. And I think the the key message to investors is continue to invest in multifamily real estate. It, it, I have had hard conversations with folks who are like, hey, why am I investing in this deal in this market where I've got another deal that I'm investing that isn't going very well? And you know, it's, it's, it's a very honest conversation to be having, right? And it's just around you know, timing the market. Did they, did you pick it up at the right time? Are things going? How are things operating? And one thing you mentioned earlier was the cap rates, right? And and I look in Dallas, and and I noticed that Dallas was kind of like the last real market. And I don't look in Nashville, so I can't comment on Nashville, or I don't look in the Floridas. But at all the markets we look at, from Phoenix to Central Texas to the Carolinas, it was the market that took the longest time to really get into the five percent going in cap rates. I've been in Central Texas for since 2014. Even stuff in like San Antonio was still like trading at high four handles only recently within you know the last six months. And I'm like, how the hell? Where everywhere else I was underwriting, Phoenix to the Carolinas, like really had that rebound quickly in lockstep with how the Fed was raising their interest rates. And and you know, we've seen deals now transact that probably would have transacted at, at a four cap. You know, eighteen months ago, are transacting in mid fives to high fives. Literally eighteen months later, in the markets we're we're looking at, and that's a huge about face. Now, I say that about Dallas. It's a good thing, but it's like it's sounding like, and maybe you can give me a little bit more help on this. But it's sounding like it's starting to come a bit more realization of what that market's starting to kick to pick up to where everyone else is, and 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 it's just not. It's got all the awesome headlines of all things, people moving there and you know, jobs are moving there. But but at some point, high interest rates for a longer period of time are going to start affecting going in cap rates. High tax rates, higher insurance rates are going to start affecting you know, you going in cap rates. And it's, it's, it's good to hear that finally you're at the party. <laughs> exactly. And I, I think one of the things that was happening over the last year is there was just such a gap in between buyer expectations and seller expectations. So sellers- you know, still thought that their property was worth, you know, X amount of dollars when really the market had dropped 10, 20, 25%. And so obviously you're seeing a lot less transactions happening and that gap has continued to dwindle down. So now I think people know, you know, what their properties are actually worth, that cap rates have risen and, you know, more deals I think will continue to get done because that gap has, has diminished over the last 12 months. Yep. Last question for you before we get into the lightning round. Anything keeping you up at night, my friend? You got any floating rate debt out there that you're just like, 
looking over the shoulder a little bit at? <laughs> yeah, great question. So we actually uh, just locked in one refinance on one of our assets um, to you know remove the the floating rate debt on that property. We have two assets down in the DFW market um, that still have floating rate, and you know luckily we're positioned where we have about a year and a half until our first extension. So we have a year and a half to three and a half years of term left, and we do have a rate cap in place. So they're not necessarily keeping me up at night, but they're assets that we're putting a lot of attention on. We're, we're driving NOI as quickly as we can, you know, making sure that we have the liquidity to buy additional rate caps if needed as that time approaches. Um, so those are the two assets that are taking up more so of our time. And, you know, again, I'm, I'm thankful that we shifted away from bridge debt when we did. Um, but we do have a couple of deals with bridge debt on them. I don't think I haven't heard anyone do a bridge debt deal in the last. 18 months. Like I think we all choked on the, the the low the low interest rate environment. You know, I don't think there's a group out there that didn't get some bridge, get some bridge at some point. And and kudos to everyone who, you know, can sit there and say, Oh, I didn't. And he's like, Yeah, okay. But the majority of people did. But, you know, I think it's completely shifting about face. And it's it's you've been around or you've been doing deals it sounds like since the same time I was I've been started. But I remember back in the day going in and buying with positive arbitrage, like buying at a cap rate where your interest rate was below that. So for example, you're buying at a five, you get a five and a half cap rate, but your interest rate's at five. It means you got positive arbitrage from day one. There's cash flow, you're good. That's what we were buying back in the day. In the last two, three, four, five years, groups were buying upside down. So you're going in with a lower cap rate or the higher interest rate, hoping that your head, you're going to pop up your head out of water because your value-add plan was so strong. Now, when the government puts a handbrake on that by increasing the interest rates by fivefold in a year, your business plan can't keep up with how quickly the Fed is increasing interest rates. I don't care how good of an operator you are, right? So there's been a little bit of like, there's a, not a little bit, there's going to be a lot of turbulence. And I think there's some people out there that aren't really realizing what they're sitting on um, and when that when that ticking time bomb is going to go off, so good to hear that you know what you got coming down the line, and you're trying to manage for it today, and that's all you can really hope for right now. So um, yeah, so kudos to you. Uh, with that being said, we like to dive into the top five investing tips. Is lightning round at the end of the show? Are uh, you ready to get into it? Let's do it, mate. Question number one is: What is the daily habit you practice to keep on track towards your goals? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm going to give you two. So first off, I uh, work out every day. So health is of critical importance to me. Um, so we do that uh, as a family, uh, myself, my wife, uh, we've gotten our 11-year-old involved where we take her to the gym a couple of days a week, which is a lot of fun. And then the other thing is time blocking. And that's, you know, we're working on that constantly trying to, you know, make sure that we're abiding to our time blocks, but just time block your day and set aside time for working on your business, working on your mindset, you know, working on your family. Um, those things are critically important. And a lot of times you can get bogged down by the the simple tasks that are coming through via email every day. Yeah. Being, being a, a servant to your email is so important. I actually just went to, I'm sidetracking a little bit. It's not a lightning round, but I just went away to Bali for two weeks just recently. And it's the first time since my honeymoon, which was six and a half years ago, that I took my emails off my phone, right? And I bought my laptop just in case, just in case. But I was like, you've got one bat signal, guys, it's through WhatsApp, and that's the only way you can get to me. And But putting those barriers in place to allow you to have that time, same sort of time blocking, but I need the time off because I can come back and be a better 
leader of the company, right? You, everyone needs it. It's not we're not we're not machines. So, yeah, time blocking on both personal, you know, getting tasks done, getting that sort of what is it? Eat the, eat the green tree frog in the morning, getting that that one task you don't want to do done, but super super important. And obviously, working out. I'm I'm huge in fitness, so love that. Uh, question number two is who's been the most influential person in your career to date? That's a great question. Uh, most influential person. I'm going to give you a couple. So first off, uh, Tony Robbins has been absolutely phenomenal. We go to a lot of his events and it just pushes you to the next level. It also, you know, creates a lot of excitement and motivation. So he's been massive. Um, and then I would also say, you know, both my wife and my business partner, um, you know, they continue to push me every single day to be a better person, to be a better business person, be a better friend, to be a better mentor. Um, and so those two individuals as well. Awesome stuff. Awesome stuff. And question number three is, what is the most influential tool in your business? And when I say tool, it could be a physical tool like a notebook, which I'm jotting all the all these awesome ideas down here. It could be a phone, like so it's physical, or it could be a piece of software that you just can't run the business without. What is it? Yeah, great question. Gosh, there's a lot that comes to mind. Um, I'm just going to give everyone a, a quick tool that we use in our business. It's called monday.com and it's a task management software and we've implemented that and that's really helped our business grow and you know help make sure that tasks aren't falling through the cracks so as you go and build a team you know it's going to be crucial that you build out a task management piece of your of your company yep that's I I hundred percent agree. Somewhere where you can document it and you can come back all the time you know places like monday.com slacks another good really a good one uh, asana so, um, yeah, love, love, love that stuff. Uh, question number four is what has been the biggest failure in your career? What did you learn from that failure? Biggest failure in my career has been investing in the wrong market. So when we first got into syndication, we were opp- opportunistic. So we were you know, taking a look at deals. If they looked great on paper, we would jump in and, you know, and purchase that asset. And what happened was we got spread out across the nation. So we had, you know, a property in New Mexico, a couple up in Minnesota where I live, one in Alabama. And eventually, you know, we realized that we really needed to focus on a couple of markets, build out our buckets. We got more economies of scale, better relationships, you know, with vendors and property management teams. And then also, you know, investing in the wrong market, we had invested in an oil market that was solely dependent on oil. And COVID hit shortly after that. Oil went negative, all the jobs left. And so we had a lot of pain for a couple of years on that asset. Luckily, it's come roaring back and we actually just listed the asset. We should be able to do really well with it. But looking back, there is no way I would invest in a market that doesn't have, you know, extremely diverse employment base um, currently. Great, great piece of advice because I think that's so important not being a one-trick pony, but also not being too scattered, right? Trying to get that economies of scale. It's, it's, it's very, very important. Mate, last question. Where can people reach you to continue the conversation? that will be in your sphere. Where do they go? Yeah, if you go to granitetowersequitygroup.com, go to our Contact Us page. You can fill that out. That'll get you into our database. We'll keep you in the loop with what we have going on. We'll also send you a link after you fill that out to uh, schedule a call with us. And we'll jump on a call and chat a little bit more. So again, Granite Towers equitygroup.com. If you mention mention passive investment tracker, we'll send you over our passive investment tracker as well. 
Awesome stuff, my friend. Look, I want to thank you so much for jumping on today's show. I just want to reflect some of the things that I took away from today's show. I think, you know, your ability to continue to adapt in today's environment sounds like we've been sort of in the saddle at the helm together, same sort of time frame, and just seeing the different trends that are occurring in real time and how you're adjusting asset management to ac- accommodate for those changes. You know, we can't always predict the future, but you can sort of predict or control what you you can control and and keeping the you know the moving that NOI in the best way possible i think is really the key to uh, managing the existing assets today but also then looking for new assets mo- coming down the pike and how that buy box has changed over the years and you know something like just changing the average household income you don't look at anything below $50,000 you know i think like i mentioned earlier it was 65,000 for us you know trying to just really really implement those guardrails so you're never ever going to get hurt or just on that last example you just made, you know, not investing in a town that's a one-trick pony. Um, these types of things start to really, really make you a better investor, a better operator, and and be really be have a good fiduciary responsibility for your investors. So, did I leave anything out there? I think you nailed it, and I appreciate you having me on, Reed. No, awesome. Well, thank you so much again. Enjoy the rest of your week, and we'll catch up very, very soon. Well, there you have another cracking episode jam-packed with incredible insight from Michael. Remember, head over to granitetowersequitygroup.com to check out all the stuff that they've got going on over there. If you do like this show, the easiest way to give back is to give it a five-star review on iTunes. And we're going to do this all again next week. So remember, be bold, be brave, and go give life a crack. 